You're now experiencing data with Brian O'Neill. Experiencing data explores how product managers, analytics leaders, data scientists, and executives are looking at design and user experience as a way to make their custom enterprise data products and analytics applications more useful, usable, and valuable. And now, here's your host, the founder and principal of Designing for Analytics, Brian O'Neill. Welcome back to Experiencing Data. This is Brian O'Neill, and today I have Eric Siegel on the line of predictive analytics world fame. Although you've done a bunch of other stuff and you've done so much in the space of predictive analytics, welcome to the show and tell us about your work in this space with data science. Thank you very much, Brian, and thanks for including me. Yeah. Yeah, so um, I'm the founder of the Predictive Analytics World Conference Series, and uh, going further back in time, I'm a former academic. I was a computer science professor at Columbia University, um, focused mostly on machine learning, and have been um, a consultant since 2003. Wrote a book called Predictive Analytics, and the subtitle of the book is actually an informal definition of the field. It's Predictive Analytics, The Power to Predict Who Will Click, Buy, Lie, or Die. Um, and the updated edition came out 2016. Um, that's an accessible book for any reader. It's used as a textbook at more than 35 universities, but um, doesn't read like a textbook. It's more of an entertaining con- uh, level, sort of conducive, anecdotally driven, but conceptually complete introduction to the field. And uh, as a consultant, you know, we've been running the conference, growing it. It's been growing steadily for the last 12, 12 years. And um, I also released a uh, short web series of 10 short episodes about machine learning called The Doctor Data Show. And I've been writing op-eds about social justice and other ethical concerns that arise with the deployment of machine learning. Cool. Yeah. And I've I've been enjoying reading uh, a lot of your your articles and your opinions on things. And and one of the things that struck me uh, in the material is, uh, well, I'm going to throw a quote at you. The greatest pitfall that hinders analytics is not to properly plan for its deployment. <laughs> Talk to me about yeah. what's what, what's going on here. This ties very much into to human centered design to me, which is when there's humans in the loop. You know, it all comes down to that last mile, and are people going to engage? with our solutions or are they going to let them hit the floor for whatever reasons it's humans doing things or not? Tell me about that. Like, yeah, I mean, that's that, you, you know, your, your podcast is focused very much on the human centered aspect. And that is the first and foremost area of concern with regard to uh, where things can go wrong, which can seem ironic to people at first coming into the field because you think, well, this is a very technical thing like rocket science, you know, computers that learn from data. Uh, And that core software, predictive modeling methods, algorithms, software, whatever you want to call it, uh, it is quite technical at the center of it, but that technology is not where things most often go wrong. What most often go wrong is not planning for how you're going to use this thing. So you don't jump to the number crunching. You start with, hey, how is this thing going to actually improve business and more specifically render mass scale operations more effective in marketing fraud detection process credit screening all the things that are done in large numbers on a large scale at your organization most of these things can and are improved by the predictive scores provided by a predictive model and that that's what machine learning is also known as 
as predictive modeling? Is it learning from data to create these uh, these models? And the models, which is sort of the patterns or formulas you've ascertained from the data, or rather that the computer ascertained. But the whole point is to then use those models, and that's what we mean by deployment or operationalization. Put them into action, actually integrate them into existing operations, mass scale operations, in order to improve those operations, right? So you're actually trying to make your business run better, target people with marketing that are more likely to buy, target people for retention offers more likely to leave, spend time with fraud auditors on transactions more likely than average to actually turn out to be fraudulent, um, take the risk of, of providing somebody credit or approving their credit card application on people who are better credit risks or, or tune their their limits accordingly, um, you know, insurance, all these decisions, all very much to run them by the numbers means changing the way those day-to-day, moment-to-moment decisions are made. And because you're changing the current operations, not just putting a new technology in the back end, but its output then actually actively makes change, then you need change management. You need a plan. You need buy-in for that plan. Um, You can do some preliminary number crunching, but don't green light and trigger and do the go-ahead of the whole machine learning project uh, until you've planned accordingly, iterated. It's a collaborative effort to sort of design, target, define scope, and ultimately green light and, and execute on a full-scale machine learning project. Yeah, and do you know if anyone's like prototyping uh, in any of these solutions? Because I feel like, you know, even for example with, you know, like for marketing, like who's going to, you know, not re-up their subscription at the end of the month or, you know, these types of, uh, of predict- predictive scores. Uh-huh. I feel like a lot of this is ripe for things where, you could prototype with the solution, like what is the literal delivery of the information look like to the marketing people who would be the, the people deciding whether or not to send out a snail mailer or an email campaign or do nothing. But you could figure out like if we presented something like this, even if it's the wrong people, right? It's like we actually haven't run the model. We don't know if these 10,000 people are the ones that are actually going to leave us. But theoretically, if we presented this information to you, what would you do next? I feel like a fair amount of this could be, could be prototyped without doing any data science to figure out where operationally it would fail. <laughs> what do you think? I mean, is that crazy? <laughs> well, when you say prototyping, you just mean testing out a new process or do you mean uh, prototyping? Yes, a, I mean the actual, uh, again, the, the, the last mile piece. So because the data science piece uh, ends with some type of output, right? But the output isn't the business outcome. So if you could simulate the outputs to some degree, and I know you probably can't do this with everything, but you could find out like, especially if, for example, you know, marketing has never seen something like this type of deliverable, they have like, it sounds great on the business to be able to predict like who, who is going, who needs a nurturing from a marketing perspective to retain their subscription or whatever. It sounds great until you, until the actual data lands in your lap and you're like, oh, well, yeah, this is great, but I actually need to see what were the last 10, you know, touches that they got from direct marketing already. So it's it's nice to know that you predict this, but I'm realizing that I need all this other information now before I would actually know whether or not to 
send them a nurture campaign or whatever. And so all of a sudden, the prediction's right, but they don't actually have what they need to do their job. And so it falls on the floor or whatever. I feel like a lot of this could be prototyped to figure out these failure points early. And they may or may not be extra data science work. It may be something else. Right. No, that's, like, a, that's a great point. So I, I see what you mean now uh, by prototyping, as in sort of try it out. So yeah, without right. even necessarily creating a model or a sophisticated model or one that's... Because there, there is such a thing as, as um, sort of business rules that are made by hand, sort of good mm-hmm. rules, of thumb, rules of thumb, you know, without necessarily doing a lot of number crunching. So as a first pass, you could say, hey, look, let's make a few rules that pull out this list of prospects that we, we you know we believe are the most likely to cancel or churn mm-hmm. in the next quarter and then hand that over and see, you know, what it means for these salespeople who are going to be answering calls and on the phone with them or even uh, managers in, uh, in offices of a bank. And I know a colleague who did churn modeling and that's how they delivered. That's how they deployed it was mm-hmm. that the managers in the bank wanted to know when somebody walks in the door, one of their customers, this is one of those people flagged as more likely to be cancelers. Um, you know, well, what are they going to do with it? What are their complaints or concerns? Does it end up being actionable? Uh, right. Put that context on it. So let me take a step back though, um, to put, a, put, um, put this into its, into, uh, put a perspective on this, which is that probably f- for most of the cases of these sort of business applications I've mentioned, so for targeting marketing and retention of customers, fraud detection, um, and uh, credit scoring, a large part of this is where we're actually automating decisions. So who gets uh, suppressed or included in a contact list for direct marketing mm-hmm. who gets approved for a credit card application there's large swaths of cu- customers for which these decisions are actually end-to-end fully automated sure. and it's a matter of to sort of integrating that and figure out getting the buy-in and, and making it happen um, but your question and I, I believe uh, the focus of your work largely is where those decisions are supported. So they're informed in by these predictions. So for example, a customer service agent sees, Oh, this customer is calling. And then there's a few pieces of indicators on the screen that are informed by the prediction. This person is got a big red light next to them because mm-hmm. they're, you know, five times more likely than average to cancel next quarter, something like that. Well, what do they do with that red light? Ultimately, it's informing them and during the conversation, the course of doing business, the interaction, it's a human decision informed by uh, a quantitative prediction from the predictive model. You know, that would probably be decision, decision support rather than decision automation. Both, mm-hmm. both kinds of uh, informing decisions is what we call deploying or operationalizing the model, integrating it into existing systems. And in the case of decision support, yeah, there's that much more sort of human factor considerations that have to go into sort of um, eking out how well is this going to work when we do go to deployment? How, how will it actually be used or ignored? Will it seem helpful? Are is there pieces of this that are missing? Um, is there a different way we have to deliver the information visually on the screen for that? Uh, for that human, right? So the, in that case, the human, the, the customer service agent or whomever it is who's, who's taking these outputs of the model into consideration to inform their interaction or decisioning, that person's going to need to receive this information in some specific way 
and, and act on it. And so, yeah, by prototyping, you know, there's sort of a system to that. Let's try it out, see, see if they understand it. How much training do those people need in order to help understand the decisions? And, and as I mentioned, you know, when you get into these ethical considerations, a perfect example of this is in predictive, predictive policing. Um, judges and parole officers use exactly this type of information to inform decisions about how much longer should somebody, should somebody be released on parole now? What kind of sentence should they go to? It directly informs and of course, therefore, will in some cases be the deciding factor for how long convicts stay incarcerated. So it's mm-hmm. obviously very important that the information is acted upon in a sound way. Yes, and I probably should have should have qualified that 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 I, I was speaking in the context of augmented human, you know, human in the loop type of solutions as opposed to fully automated. But this is actually a really good segue. To my next question, and that's, do you feel like organizations should look at an augmented human-based output as a, as a first step, or is that not necessarily a first step? And 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 aug- going fully automated may be just as viable. Like, do you see those as a continuum, or are they really just separate choices that are not nothing to do with each other? Well, no, they're, they're, they're interactive. There could be a continuum or one as a first step for, in some cases. But for many applications, they're separate. And many applications just go straight to decision automation. For example, mm-hmm. if I'm targeting my direct mail, mm-hmm. I'm just going to select a list based on the scores. And so right. I'm not making a, you know, I've got a million people on my list and I want to pick the best 200,000 to send a postcard to. I'm, right. I'm not going to have a human making a decision for each one. That's sort of the point of mass marketing. Mm-hmm. Now I'm just doing that overall mass marketing more effectively, more efficiently. It still may be mostly junk mail. It still may mostly get a very slow response rate. It's just that it'll get a significant enough boost that, uh, you know, your ROI could increase by multiple times over easily. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in fact, this whole issue of, of making sure that models are, are used correctly or taking a step back, that when you plan a machine learning project, you're planning for that use, that deployment of the model, that integration of how it's going to be used from the get-go. And that's sort of the whole management issue and the planning, the operationalization process, the planning of it. Um, from the get-go is actually the theme of an entire track at our conference. So Predictive Analytics World, which is the conference series I've been running since 2009, our largest North American event is in Vegas, May 31st to June 4th, including before and after full-day training workshops. The main two-day conference um, is actually five conferences in one. We have four different vertical Predictive Analytics World events. Uh, business, financial services, healthcare, and industry 4.0, and then a sister conference, Deep Learning World, an advanced form of of machine learning, deep learning, to type a neural network. Um, And sort of the umbrella of all those five conferences, the sort of more catch-all across all uh, business application areas is called Predictive, Predictive Analytics World for Business. That one has three tracks, and one of those three tracks is entirely on project management and operationalization. And uh, in that track, we have, just within that one track, we have sessions from Cisco, Federal Express, Google, LinkedIn, Comcast, Xerox, Caesar. This is funny because the conference is in Caesars and we have a presentation from Caesars, mm-hmm. Caesars, Caesars Entertainment. Um, 
as well as others, uh, including the CIA. And in fact, the chief of analytics of the CIA, Michael Simon, is speaking. And the name of his session is An Argument for Decision Support over decision automation. So again, as in my initial answer to your question, yeah, in some cases, there is a deliberation. Should we have a human in the loop or should we start with human in the loop first? Um, and, you know, that's, you can go online and see the full um, detailed description of his forthcoming session about where he's arguing decision support over decision automation. But there's no changing the fact that in many of these applications, you kind of go straight to automation. And, and having a human in the loop per decision doesn't scale. Sure. And that's sort of the point of automation in general, right, is it scales, um, including the automation of learning from the data. And in this conversation, we're talking about the automation of using what we've learned from data, the deployment of the model, integration of those predictive scores. So if the concern is, hey, uh, how do we, if it's a first time deployment, we're just, this is the first, you know, iteration of this modeling uh, project and business value proposition, how do we mitigate risk and make sure that we don't suddenly jump to a decisioning process that somehow is faulty or, or buggy on some level? You know, there's, there's a lot of ways to mitigate that risk. And one way, by the way, is simply to start with more of an incremental deployment. So if you're doing 100,000 decisions a day, right, as I mentioned, marketing, let's say you're deciding which ad to display on the website in real time each time somebody opens the page um, based on the profile of that user or customer. Um, this is obviously also going to be automated without a human in the loop because it takes 0.01 seconds. In any case, whatever the deployment is, whatever the change from the current champion method, and now this is the challenger method, you don't have to jump entirely from one to the other. You can incrementally deploy it. So start by saying, well, 10% of the time, we'll use the new method, which is driven by a predictive model or by a better predictive model or some some kind of change so in the change in the transition you sort of do it incrementally and you mitigate your risk in that way the fact that you have such a large chapter of the the or section of the the conference focused on operationalization makes me want to ask you a question that i i asked tom davenport on this show earlier so if we said 10 years ago that uh, out of a scale one to ten, a score of one to ten, one being the worst, ten being the best. Ten years ago, the analytics field was at a one in terms of its ability to generate value in the last mile or in the oper operationalization sense. Where where are we now in 2020? Well, and how would you are you score? talking about value in terms of its ultimate? Uh... I don't mean technically correct alone. Like it, it had to create an, a positive outcome, not just a technically viable solution, but it actually had to be put in production. It had to get mm -hmm. used or create business value, however that organizational value, however that was defined. Yeah. So in terms of if 10 were the highest potential, you know, in the sort of ideal world where it was really being... Mm -hmm. used to its fullest potential. I don't know, three, three and a half. Is that what Tom said? <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're a little bit more positive. He gave it about a two to a two and a half, but it's, it's, it's fascinating okay. to me that you're both within about one, you know, one, one degree of difference there. So that's, that's really interesting. Fortunately for me, uh, Tom actually wrote the forward to my book, Predictive Analytics. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, there, and sort of the, the biggest limit to that potential is just that although almost all large organizations are doing this and many mid 
level, even among the large organizations, even though they're all using it for some of these main business areas that I've mentioned, marketing and fraud detection and such, um, there's so many sort of sub problems within those areas where it could also be used. So it's, it's, it's sort of about it becoming that much more pervasive. I'd say that's the main way in which the potential still exists for it to continue to grow. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, you wrote, wrote an article in Harvard Business Review, and it had a five-step process for deploying predictive analytics there. And it started with like defining the business objective of step one, which sounds logical, and we've heard that. So I want to stop right at that stage right there and ask you, whose job is it to define this, particularly if an organization is new to this whole field? I feel like from my conversations with people, this right here is where things start to break down, particularly if it's not a, like a standard thing, like who should get the mailer? That's a very easy thing to, to understand what it's going to be. You know, we have a million customers, you know, which 20% should we send a mailer to? It's very easy to understand that and define it. Whose job is it to, to, to define this business problem with enough clarity and to build in the fact there's going to be iteration, like you may find out, oh, we can't get the training data. Oh, we need to go revisit the problem space. Whose job is it to get that right when when the business may not understand what's possible uh, and the data people may be saying, well, what do you want us to solve? Give me a problem. Give me a quant problem to go work on. <laughs> oh, the, the, the responsibility, if you're listening to this uh, interview, it's your responsibility. I like that. That is to say that there's no preordained, right? I mean, most yeah. ideally, it's from top down, right? So the CEO is super fluent with the concepts and it, you know has a mission and a vision, you know, sort of sort of top down. But that's usually not the case, right? So it's or it's some maybe it's a little bit less than that ideal. So you know, then whereas you have some data scientist who's very technical and you know, and as I am you know, very much a proponent of the technology and sees the value of it, but it's kind of coming from um, sort of, you know, very focused on the core technology um, and doesn't necessarily have a very loud voice or even a presence in the, in the business side meetings uh, where this kind of thing would start to be socialized. So that's sort of bottom up. And so maybe they can convince their manager's manager. And I think that it's got to come from all directions and it evolves, right? And ultimately it becomes a collaborative effort. Everyone has to be on the same page. Everyone has to get uh, involved and and ramped up to a certain degree and put in their two cents with regard to where are the potential pragmatic considerations and practical constraints in this plan for how it's going to be deployed. Because there's not one person who's so smart, they see the whole thing and can be a one person one person show Mm -hmm. because there's there's so many facets that are unseen within each role in the company so if i see hey we can target the marketing that much better but then i go talk to the operations manager the person who's running the marketing they might not be willing to make that big of a change to the way they're doing the marketing right now maybe only a certain amount and then i might be like well but if you change it your profit will you know, according to these scratch calculations, it'll triple your, the bottom line ROI of the, uh, of the marketing campaign will triple. And it, it might take a fair amount of back and forth and listening to get on the same page. And oh, so here's sort of the implicit underlying philosophy behind why you still want to market to a larger list, even though most people don't respond, you know, maybe it has a longer term 
advertising effect as a side effect. There's so many considerations and human factors and things that aren't necessarily spelled out explicitly. So therefore, it requires iteration and meetings and conversations and sharing of, of insights. Got it. I would just emphasize for people listening to this, if you are very technical, that you know, Eric mentioned the word listen here several times, which implies you're having conversations about this. And it implies that you didn't just jump to, I will solve your mailing list problem, like your marketing mailing list problem, and you hand them a model and then you walk on to the next project. Yeah. What, I, what I hear you saying is you don't get a pass if you're, if you're necessarily technical. You don't just get a pass when, when you get a vague question like, we would like to add machine learning to our product. Can you help? Yeah. <laughs> right. There's a, there's an unpacking that needs to happen there. And cause I've had some people feel like, well, come back to us when you figure out where you want it in the product and what you want it to do. And then there's a camp of people that feel like, well, no, the data scientists understand what might be possible. And even though they're not responsible for the, the line of business directly, they should be handling that negotiation, asking the right questions to help the business person arrive at like, where might it make sense to to use machine learning so that we're not just you know doing technical exercises and rehearsals? Is that your <laughs> yeah no your summary exactly right? So that's another right. So that's the way you just put it is perfect reasoning for why it requires meetings, mm-hmm. a bunch of meetings. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. And so it, it, yeah, I, I think that I, I think as long as people are focused on on the outcome, right? It's, it's so much, it's so much about the outcome. And when I talk about this a lot on this show with, with design, we really need to get past our outputs and the things that we make, the artifacts and, and, and those types of the software, whatever it may be, and really try to focus on the downstream outcome, which is sometimes harder to manage and or measure, I should say. Uh, but ultimately that's where, that's where the value is created, right? <laughs> Right. I mean, it'd be a lot more fun if I put on my science hat and all I care about is how cool this underlying technology, and believe me, it is. The idea of learning from data and drawing generalizations that hold in general is quite fascinating scientifically and the methods are are cool as heck, right? So with that hat on, it would be a lot easier if I could go off into my cubicle alone and never meet with anyone and just do the number crunching and, and create magic. But sort of... Uh, sort of put sort of put the whole argument in, in one other one new way. You know, going back to what you said a second ago, where somebody might say, "Hey, could you add some machine learning to our to this particular system?" But it's not like some technology you plug into your website and now your website runs twenty five percent faster. Right. Uh, it's not a technical. It's 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 a core technology you're leveraging, but it's overall. It's not a technical endeavor. It's an organizational endeavor. You're making a change to operations. So it's a multifaceted cross-enterprise collaboration. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you have any anecdotes uh, or, or experiences that come to mind uh, around model interpretability and you know, uh, having to, to really give consideration to you know, the way a prediction was presented to the customer and and how that may or may not have affected the the success, the the outcome, or the value creation. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, it kind of depends on the context. You're like, who who are the consumers of the score? Should it just be a red light, a yellow light, or a green light? What are the chances this customer is going to head off in the wrong direction? Or mm-hmm. what are the chances they're going to be responsive to this particular product offering? Mm-hmm. Is that as simple? Should we keep it that simple? Or is it a sort of uh, you know different class of 
of you know VP of sales type people who need more innuendo or might be served by it because you could go either way mm-hmm. when you serve up the probability which ultimately it is you know and, and you could put thresholds and then put colors red green and yellow on it or you could say hey here's the actual specific number and you could show it on a scale from zero to 100 um, and either way you could say well here are the main factors that it that influenced it right so the fact that this customer has been with us for more than seven years might be a main determining factor. There's whole, lots mm-hmm. of factors like that about each individual. And there are ways to sort of reverse engineer this predictive model and try to create explainability around the resulting score for each individual score. And whether that's useful um, just depends on the use case scenario. It's often very much desired and it certainly can't hurt to explore the potential use of that. Yeah, I, I wonder if that, uh, again, even if it's primarily because it, it encourages engagement with, with the prediction that's being made, right? Like, so, so even though it may not improve the prediction per se, technically, it, it is what unlocks the outcome, right? Like, because it makes someone pull the trigger and say, okay, I will... I'm going to go ahead and grant this loan or whatever it may be. I mean, some of that probably there's legal reasons why it needs, you know, that, that, that the predict, the uh, interpretability needs to be uh, present. But I, I feel like, again, if you think about how is the consumer and a human, uh, the user and a human centered uh, human in the loop type of situation, that's an important element, right? To, to make sure that they're willing to make a decision that, that ultimately rides on them. Uh, as opposed to an automation kind of you know situation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, wrapping up here quickly uh, in, in a moment, but I, I wanted to ask you, like, since you, since you've been in the field for such a long time, is there anything you would change if you could just rewind ten years right now with your career and like the work that you've done in this space? Is there like one big thing you would like? Oh, I would have done this differently. Oh, ten years. That's not very long actually anymore. Actually, twenty. Uh, oh well. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I mean, 20, I mean, I don't, I, uh, I'm really glad I have a PhD and I feel like it, it helped me a lot as far as di- being a disciplined person and the ability to think abstractly. Uh-huh. But as far as where I ended up going, I mean, a PhD technically is just a, is just a, um, is training to do research and development or to be an academic. Mm-hmm. So I didn't end up pursuing that. After, I mean, I was only on the faculty for three years full time. Then I became an entrepreneur, a couple startups. And now since 2003, I've been an industry consultant. So it took me six years to do that. So I could have sort of gotten a master's instead. I I don't know. I've never really sort of felt regret about it. (laughs) I don't know if I have a great answer to your uh, question. Some people, sometimes people have have a... (laughs) I would have, uh, I mean, predictive analytics world is now, you know, we have an umbrella event called machine learning week because now the term machine learning is the, is the term. Mm-hmm. When I started as a consultant in 2003, machine learning was strictly in our research and development uh, academic uh, research term. Mm-hmm. And in the industry word, it was extremely arcane. Mm-hmm. Predictive, anal- people were calling it data mining, but I was like, that's a silly term for a lot of reasons, but predictive analytics was a new term. And I was like, well, that makes sense. It's at least like a sound term refers to what we're doing. And it was good to go with that term, but 
you know, I, it would have been helpful to know uh, with a little more foresight that machine learning was actually going to become the relevant term for my field. You know, my next book will be called machine learning something instead of, <laughs> instead of predictive <laughs> analytics. <laughs> um, but predictive analytics is still a pertinent term. It's just machine learning really has taken over as the term. Unfortunately, artificial intelligence has ta- also taken over as a term. And that term is very fuzzy and can kind of mean whatever you want. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to, hard to change these words sometimes once they get out there. So <laughs> you got to yeah. go with the tide sometimes if that's, that's where it wants to go. That's the language people speak, I guess. But yeah. um, cool. Well, th- this has been a great conversation. I, I appreciate you coming on experiencing data and I'm just curious, do you have any, any closing advice for data product managers or analytics leaders, uh, data scientists? Uh, what, what would, what would you leave them with? Well, I mean, I'd say that the more you learn about the field on both the operational, you know, business leadership side and the core technology under the hood side, the better. And whichever of those two sides you're on, learn about the other more than you think you need. If you're on the more business side, know the fact that the core technology, the machine learning methods, decision trees, log linear regression, neural networks, they're not nearly as difficult to understand the basic intuition as you may think. It's quite interesting. Don't be intimidated by it. It's good to have a sense of it and definitely a sense of what the data preparation entails. That's the main technical hands-on bottleneck and challenge. Ironically, it's not the rocket science part. It's just getting the data into the right form and format. And then more generally, there are so many different roles along the lines of what we've been discussing today. You know, so many ways you can be involved both on the technical side and in terms of project management and being involved in operational deployment of people that are consuming uh, the scores and how determining how that's going to work and integrate with existing processes. There's so many different roles and parts to play. It's not just a number crunching person in the corner doing it. It's an organizational effort. It requires lots of different participants. So look at it holistically and figure out which part of it might be most interesting to you because chances are there is an opportunity for you to get involved. Cool. Thank you. That's great. Great closing advice. And, and where can uh, people follow you? Is uh, LinkedIn, website, social media? How, how, how can they follow up? Oh, well, you can go to our conference website, predictiveanalyticsworld.com. You can go to my book's website, thepredictionbook.com. And uh, you can see uh, my 10 episode, Dr. Data Show, drdatashow.com. Awesome. Cool. I will definitely uh, link those up in the show notes. And uh, Eric, thanks for coming on Experiencing Day. It's been great to chat with you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Definitely. All right, cheers. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Experiencing Data with Brian O'Neill. If you did enjoy it, please consider sharing it with the hashtag Experiencing Data. To get future podcast updates or to subscribe to Brian's mailing list, where he shares his insights on designing valuable enterprise data products and applications, visit designingforanalytics.com slash podcast.